Is Ezra like weirdly dim? What is what does dim mean? <laughs> yeah, fuck you, Matt. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, with me in the studio here is Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra Klein is joining us from New York City. A, uh, big Apple. The Big Apple. Yeah, I hear it's nice. Um, no, it's terrible. You've I'm not a New York to, fan. You've already complained about New York. Yeah, it, it, it does. It's, it's a very smelly city. In truth. <laughs> Speaking of smelly, the Congressional Budget Office released its score. What kind of transition is that? It's a smelly CBS score. It's a pretty score. smelly score. I'm it with stinks. Matt. The CBS okay, says better. the bill stinks. Of, okay, yes, that is a better transition Okay, they assessed the American Health Care Act, which the House of Representatives passed already before getting an assessment of what it did. So now we get to find out what it does. It turns out it's pretty similar to the old American Health Care Act, that was going to reduce the number of insured people by 24 million. Uh, now it reduces by, quote unquote, only 23 million. But it costs like way more money. It costs like a little bit. So the deficit reduction goes from $150 billion in the last iteration to $119 billion. So you're spending... Thirty billion more to cover another million people, essentially. But I think That's like, a lot. It's it is a-, a lot. Yes. But the thing that really jumps out at me is that you had like this whole area of suspended belief, where Republicans would say, like, we made these changes. We're protecting people with pre-existing conditions. Like Paul Ryan would say this again and again. Trump would say it in interviews. You know, Paul Ryan even said it was verified. He said it's verified. He had this tweet, and he still has it up on his website, where it says verified. Upton and MacArthur amendments protect people with pre-existing conditions. And this CBO report essentially like is a big slap back to that. It says no, that's absolutely not true. Um, like most analysts had thought before this came out, the Republican bill, it will lead to people who are sick being unable to afford health insurance in the individual market. And that these kind of extra funds, like this Upton Amendment, this MacArthur Amendment, you know, actually just only the Upton Amendment provided extra funding, it's not nearly enough to fix that problem. And that, you know, a lot of this bluster around pre-existing conditions is just proved completely wrong by this report. I think it's also notable that CBO estimates that um, one-sixth of the population would live in areas of the country where the individual market would become unstable because of these waivers that Republicans added into their bill, that you would essentially see, you know, markets where the premiums would rise very quickly, um, you know, where a lot of people couldn't afford health insurance. So there was a lot of describing of this MacArthur Amendment as something that would make the bill better, that, you know, it would let states opt out of these onerous um, regulations. But CBO, you know, as I read their report, they're really saying, like, actually, this amendment makes it significantly worse. Like, it's going, if you put in this amendment, it's going to make the individual market a lot less stable. This report, I mean, (laughs) it's hard because basically what happened is the CBO released a report on the first bill. The report was devastating. Republicans didn't really change that bill very much. But then they voted before the CBO report came out. And the second CBO report is devastating, right? It is devastating in mostly the same ways and then in a couple of different ways. I think that it is worth imagining the world for a minute in which Republicans actually passed their bill, right? They actually made the AHCA law. And in a couple of years, you have 14 million people in 2018, I think that's the number, uh, losing insurance that they otherwise would have had. Not everybody loses it, right? Some people just don't get it, but whatever it is, millions of people losing insurance. You have, what is the average premium expected for a 65-year-old? It's something like $12,500, right? Yeah, it's between thirteen and $16,000. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. So I under, I you underestimated. You were- Can you imagine? Can you imagine? If that was the world Republicans created. And then in a six of markets by or, or markets covering a six of people by 2020, they're completely stabilized. And they're trying to explain this to people. You know, we've been in, in Washington very gripped by scandal lately. We've been gripped by Russia and, you know, what Donald Trump's associates said and when did they say it and who knew what about Michael Flynn when. There's all this stuff. And I think that this is one of these places where 
we have in politics an ability and a tendency to take very seriously information that feels secret, right? Information that comes from an intelligence leak is like very important information and we make it into a really big scandal and there's an investigation and a special counsel. It's all very exciting and, and skull and dagger. But this is a scandal. Donald Trump uh, ran around the country saying he was going to cover everybody. He was going to make deductibles lower. He was going to give you better health insurance. He was going to make sure the government paid for it if you couldn't pay for it. And this is just directionally breaking all those promises, right? Those weren't slight exaggerations, right? It's not like he said, I'll cover 30 million people, but it's only 25. Uh, he is taking coverage, trying to take coverage away from a lot of people, give them uh, insurance. CBO says that they expect millions of people to be in insurance with such high deductibles that it doesn't actually count as insurance anymore. The, the cost sharing is so high and what it covers is so sparse that they don't even want to count it as health insurance, right? You're just giving insurers money for nothing. Um, and this is a scandal, right? Donald Trump ran on one thing. Republicans ran on one thing, right? Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan and all these folks, you know, saying they were going to protect people with pre-existing conditions. And now they are doing the opposite thing. And I think in politics, we have trouble generating outrage over that kind of public breaking of promises when it's contained in appendix tables and CBO reports. But this should make people really angry. Like the way American government is supposed to work is politicians run for office telling you what they will do. Like they make promises to you and then you vote based on those promises. And then they try to do that. And sometimes they fall short. That happens, right? Barack Obama said he would pass immigration reform by the end of his first term and he didn't. But they don't usually just go – they don't usually say, I'm going to go left and I said go right. Like that's – this is really bad and people would be hurt by it. And, and like I am outraged. Like I think this is a scandal. It's also worth saying, you know, since some of the White House pushback is like, well, you know, the CBO gets stuff wrong all the time. It's, it's worth, you know, understanding where error comes in in these kind of estimates and where it doesn't. So like to – model the impact of these waivers, you need to make some kind of educated guess about which states would ask for waivers, roughly. And that's hard. You know, like, these are smart people, but they're not, they don't have, like, a magic eight ball that's going to tell them what will happen in the future. Um, And you saw that in the original estimates of of the uh, uh, Affordable Care Act, that fewer states expanded Medicaid than they thought would. Um, There were some problems getting people signed up. I mean, life is is full of murky unpredictability. Major aspects of this bill, specifically the promise-breaking aspects that Ezra was talking about, are not like that, right? I mean, Donald Trump said he wasn't going to cut Medicaid. The bill definitely cuts Medicaid. Um, The estimate that 14 million people, fewer people, will be covered by Medicaid, there is some uncertainty around that because we don't know exactly how many people will churn around the income threshold. But that's not guesswork. I mean, you can tell fairly rigorously how much fluctuation there is around that margin in any given year. And the way the bill is written, it definitely cuts people off, right? So if you benefited from the Medicaid expansion and then you lose your eligibility for one year, either because you get extra hours on the job or because you move states or something like that, you are now cut off permanently. And that's just like what it says. Similarly, I mean, Paul Ryan has said, and many, many, many of his members of his caucus have said that this bill protects people with pre-existing conditions, and it just doesn't. I mean, it the fact that the CBO report says that it doesn't is a good way for politicians to look for a third-party validator. But it's not like you need amazing CBO expertise to tell that it doesn't. Like, they put an amendment in the bill that lets states take those protections away. They're just lying, and they, and they have been for a long time. And you shouldn't let basically irrelevant points about the inherent difficulties of doing precise economic models of complicated things let you say that there's uncertainty about those aspects of the CPO report. They are definitely throwing people off Medicaid. They are definitely undermining protections for pre-existing conditions. They are definitely creating a situation where older people will be facing much higher premiums. And the long-run impact of the Medicaid changes is is much bigger than simply repealing Obamacare. And it's going to create a situation where States over time, you know, 10, 15, 20 years out, uh, have real difficulty providing coverage to the sort of most disadvantaged of the elderly and, and the disabled who have long term health care needs. Yeah. And I will say one thing, you know, I follow the CBO numbers on health care pretty closely. 
And one of the things we saw, they actually, of anyone who was doing forecasting, they did have the most accurate forecasting of Obamacare enrollment. Um, when you look at the total enrollment, their numbers have actually been pretty spot on. What they got wrong was the mix of marketplace and Medicaid. Um, and so they actually, you know, I think if you just pull out their estimates of marketplace enrollment, like, you know, you'll see Sean Spicer saying, like, you know, they predicted 20 million people to be enrolled and we're only at half of that. And that is true. But when you kind of look at the larger how many people gained insurance, their numbers have been relatively solid, given that, like, what they're trying to do is predict the future, which is not a super easy thing to do. One of the things that's been really interesting for me to watch since the CBO report is to see how different um, Republican actors have reacted to it. So, and I think there's three different reactions I've seen that are notable and kind of like which one becomes the prevailing reaction will, will matter a lot. So you saw, you know, moments after the CBO report came out, House Speaker Paul Ryan's Twitter account tweeted out this um, graphic they clearly had ready for the moment that said, like, the CBO report, like, confirms what we knew, the American Healthcare Act, um, lowers the deficit and lowers premiums. And in his press conference the next day, Paul Ryan was, you know, talking about, I believe the verb he used is he was comforted by the CBO report. Which... Boy, what would it make what would have taken to make him less comfortable like Unclear. uncomfortable? So so that's interesting to me because it suggests like there is not a like back because you could see so 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 compare that to um, you know, Mark Meadows, uh, who co-chairs the Freedom Caucus, who you know, there were some reporters with him when he was actually, you know, reading the CBO report. And he actually got, he, he read the part about um, pre-existing conditions, that premiums would become, you know, unaffordable with pre-existing conditions. And according to one reporter who was there, you know, started tearing up a little bit thinking about his sister who has a pre-existing condition and saying like, you know, if we can't protect people with pre-existing conditions, we've, we've failed and we need to go back to the drawing board. I don't know which one. And it was really surprising for me to see that from Mark Meadows, who is literally the person who advocated for this part of the bill. Like he was the guy who said, this is our non-negotiable. Like we have to get rid of that requirement that sick and healthy people be charged the same. And so in one way, it was just like, what did you think? Like, what did you think when you were doing this? Of course, you know, sick people were going to end up with higher premiums. You added in the provision that said sick people can have higher premiums. But it, it was interesting to me that this was his reaction. Like, it seemed to, like, hit him in some way. So, and then the third reaction you see is from the White House, which is just to say that the CBO is phony numbers and they're bad numbers. You see this from Sean Spicer, from um, Health and Human Services Secretary um, Tom Price have kind of had this reaction just to say, you know, the numbers are just aren't good numbers. So the reactions, you know, you've seen it's Paul Ryan saying this is a great report, Mark Meadows saying, you know, this report worries me a little bit. Trump saying this report is fake. And all of those could really, like, portend different things for how willing Republicans are, you know, to actually move this forward and pass a bill. Yeah, I agree. The 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 unified message of this fake report is great news for our bill is very funny. Um, but I, I want to focus in on Paul Ryan's justification that CBO keeps confirming that his bill lowers premiums. Uh, the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities has a very good breakdown of what the CBO actually says about premiums in the bill, and they break it into, into three categories. And, and, and before jumping into it, the big picture here is that these are not Apple – like, Brian and is not making an apples to apples comparison. CBO is not saying that under his bill, getting the same insurance for a person would be cheaper. What is happening is that a lot of people are being driven out of the market. The people left are younger and healthier, and they are buying cheaper insurance that covers less. And so you have fewer people who cost less buying insurance that covers less, and that is cheaper for those people. Um, but that's a very different thing. So what CBP breaks CBO down is saying is that you have a couple different categories of states. In states that use the MacArthur Amendment to entirely waive the ACA consumer protections, you have a lot of people with, with pre-existing conditions who are unable to buy coverage. In effect, they face an infinite premium because coverage is not available to them at any price at all, right? So that's not – like, their premium is considered to be zero in the CBO analysis or in the way Ryan is interpreting it because they're not buying they're not insurance buying. anymore. <laughs> but it's not. Like the way to think about that is like they got offered a premium of $15,000 potentially or they were just told you can't buy it at any price. It's not a premium of zero. That's a premium of infinity um, or, you know, 
$15,000. Um, then you have these sort of middle middle road states that make more moderate changes to consumer protections, don't fully wave out of the protections. Um, premiums there fall because plans cover much less. Uh, and then you have these states that don't waive consumer protections. And here, CBO is actually very clear what happens. Average sticker prices fall by 4% in these states. And the reason is, quote, because a younger and healthier population would be purchasing the insurance. So the, re- the reason I want to focus on that for a minute is that if you go back a couple of years, uh, and and Matt will brush his shoulder off as I say this, uh, if you go back a couple of years when Paul Ryan is talking about how the debt is the most important thing and how, you know, the debt is really a healthcare problem and what we need to do is bring healthcare costs under control, there was a whole discussion in Washington, certainly that Democrats were having around the Affordable Care Act, about how do you control costs in healthcare? How do you make insurance cheaper? How do you make medical care cheaper? The reason the Affordable Care Act was a 1,300-page bill is it had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of cost control experiments, different experiments happening in Medicare, different programs being created, new agencies being created to gather cost-effectiveness data. Like There were real theories of how to control cost. There is no theory at all of medical system cost control in this bill, nothing. The only thing it is doing is making insurance unaffordable for older and sicker people, and then the younger, healthier people left are buying insurance that is shittier. And that shittier insurance for those cheaper people has a lower price tag, but that is not even in the neighborhood of reducing costs for the healthcare system. And this bill, like, it's just, it's a, it's a deeply unserious document judged by Ryan's own rhetoric of a couple of years ago. They've just, he's totally thrown both semblance of intellectual honesty around this premiums issue, but also any semblance of actually trying to deal with the problems that he used to say were the core problems facing America. Um, he's just tossed those completely overboard. I mean, I think it's it's worth drilling down on, on this premiums thing. I, I thought I did th- just th- drill down about it, an, an analogy. Going further right? in the weeds. Well, Sarah. Like, if I made a law and it said that only Teslas can be sold as new cars. And then I turned around and said, well, this is going to make cars more affordable because nobody's going to be able to buy a Tesla. So instead, everyone is going to have to buy used cars, which are cheaper than new cars, right? Like, they're they're just saying that, like, the only people left in the market will be people who are cheap to cover and who are buying cheap plans. And that premiums are, quote-unquote, down because they're saying that if you can't afford health insurance, you're paying zero. But that's, I think, crazy. I mean, nothing nothing has been made affordable by, by that standard. The geography of this is also continues to be fascinating to me. I, I read an article uh, recently. It, it was published in 2016 in, in National Affairs, which is the kind of wonky conservative journal. And it was looking at Medicare Advantage, which is sort of like the the private option for for senior citizens. And uh, they were saying that, you know, Democrats kind of thought Medicare Advantage was going to be killed off once they made the, the subsidies for it less generous. But he was making the case that Medicare Advantage is actually like it's working great and conservatives should continue to use it as a, as a model for Medicare reform. Uh, but when he's talking about it, he says that like, well, it's really, really popular in Hawaii. It's really popular in Massachusetts. And there's this, like, to be sure that people in rural areas, like, really find that Medicare Advantage plans don't work for them, that they need uh, single-payer Medicare's pricing power to make things affordable. And that's very much what you're seeing in the Affordable Care Act marketplaces, too, that, you know, in California, in Maryland, in big, densely populated areas where there are a bunch of different hospitals to choose from. The sort of market competition structure is is kind of working okay. Uh, but in lower density areas, the only reason this system is workable at all is that Obamacare premiums get bigger when the premiums are higher. And under ACA, that's not true. So an identical person would get an identical subsidy, whether they're living in Maryland or living in Alaska. Uh, but the costs in Alaska, or, or Alaska is extreme, but even just Wyoming, are astronomically higher because there's just only, you know, here in Washington, D.C., if you get in a car and want to drive to a hospital, you go to a billion different hospitals. So insurance companies have some ability to say to hospitals, like, no, you can't charge that much. Uh, in a very rural area, there's like only so many places you can go to get health care. And either the government can step in and tell those people, no, you have to restrain your prices, or else they can say to the insurers, no, you have to 
raise your reimbursement rates way, way, way up because people, you know, they need to get treatment within a reasonable distance from from where they live. Republicans have become the party of rural America through, I guess, mostly leveraging the guns issue and other aspects of, of social and cultural identity. But their policy approach on the healthcare issue does not in any way like reflect a consciousness of that and some kind of need to come up with solutions that are workable for the communities that they represent. And it is astounding to me how just like unimpacted they are by study after study after study saying that this is what's going to happen. Um, because you know, this is their broader vision for healthcare. I mean, th- this whole uh, American Healthcare Act, it would be a tragedy for the tens of millions of people impacted, but but most Americans would be exempt. But this is what they want to do to Medicare, too. They they want to push the healthcare system more and more and more in a direction that studies keep showing will completely break the backs of the communities where their voters live, where they presumably live. And they're not taking it in any way seriously. I mean, maybe they will in the Senate, but in the House process, these reports come at them and they kind of like they duck them or they spin them away or they come up with some flim flam so vulnerable members can have talking points, but they don't actually look at it and say, wait a minute, like if we are supposed to be a political party that is representing rural America, we need to think about how rural economies work and what kind of of policy solutions we can put forward for them. And it's like they're just counting on these bills not passing. I can't can't think through any any way that Paul Ryan believes you could govern in the way that Paul Ryan says you want to govern and also turn back around to like non-metropolitan Wisconsin and be like, this is a good result. Yeah. So, you know, I'm really curious about what happens next in the Senate and how this CBO report influences the discussion and the debate they're going to have there. I think like if you look at the debate that's shaping up, a you know senator from Alaska has a lot more sway and a lot more seeming concern than you know any representatives I've seen from Alaska. Um, Lisa Murkowski has been pretty outspoken on this particular issue that like she understands Alaska would get a really raw deal if you said, you know, everyone there gets the exact same tax credit as people here in D.C. Um, We're at a point right now in the healthcare debate where the CBO report came out. The Senate has really been, you know, in discussions, but are going to start writing the Senate bill next week while um, legislators are back in their districts on recess. And it sounds like within the next few weeks, we might have a Senate bill. And I think that's where we really test out the idea of um, is the goal to have something pass or is the goal to um, write a bill and like say we gave it a good effort, but we couldn't get it together. And I think, you know, I've obviously Weeds listeners have listened to both Ezra and I go back and forth on, um, you know, what we think the odds are. But I think, you know, the dynamic Ezra talked about a few weeks ago of no one wanting to be the failure point, no one wanting to be like the place where this stopped is quite strong um, that, you know, senators don't want to be the ones who like got this bill and, you know, dropped the ball and weren't able to deliver. At the same time, you have this counter dynamic of someone like Mark Meadows understanding what his bill actually does and saying, you know, maybe we need to go back to the drawing board a little bit. And I don't know how those two prevail. Um, my sense from talking to some eight Republican aides on the Senate side is that they are, much like the House, more concerned about um, costs and deficit reduction than they are about the coverage numbers. Um, I, I think it's possible they could draft a bill on the Senate side that would also lead to really significant coverage loss and get people behind that. But um the Senate process will be very interesting to but, watch because, I mean, like, they're not they're not operating with that fail safe of we'll send it somewhere else and like they'll reject it. Like they are, you know, more operating with like what we do has like a decent chance of becoming law. The, the concern about the deficit here, though, is pretty dubious. I mean, it, it's striking that um, if you look back at the the old uh, CBO report from the um, I think it was from the fiscal cliff era, but they had like a bunch of here's some options to reduce the deficit. And they scored at that time that adding a, a public option to the Affordable Care Act would reduce the deficit by $154 billion over 10 years, um, which is not like a like a game changer in terms of like long term fiscal issues in the United States. But that's a lot more deficit reduction. As just 
one measure than this whole American Health Care Act uh, would do more to reduce the deficit, would cause no coverage loss, would in fact increase coverage, right? It, it just it would be trivially easy if your focus – say you didn't care about coverage at all. You were like, I just – it is indifferent to me how many people are covered. I just want to reduce the deficit. Well, you could reduce the deficit by more than this bill while adding coverage. But they're not doing that because the absolute rock-solid commitment of House Republicans is a huge hundreds of billions of dollars of tax cuts to households making over $250,000 a year, right? And the big question in these Senate debates is, can they let that go, right? The, the, the Cassidy-Collins bill has some interesting technical features, but like the main thing is it isn't a gigantic tax cut for the rich. This is such an important point, by right. the way. If uh, like this is the key point of everything. If you're not insisting that your health care bill include a giant tax cut for the rich, there's a lot of interesting things you can do, right? I mean, all these Republicans who are out there who are like, oh, there's a lot of problems with the marketplaces, like that's all true, right? The people are out there like, oh, there's a lot of problems with Medicaid. Like that's kind of true. Um, there are things we could do. Like the deficit, it's big. Like we could make it smaller. But if your health care bill has to include a $600 billion tax cut for high-income families, it's very challenging to also improve the quality of health care available to lower-middle-class Americans because those are not goals that are in alignment in any kind of way, right? It's like if I'm saying, you know, I, I want us to have, like, uh, a nice car, but but all my money is, is going on vacations, it, it doesn't – there's something just – fundamentally disingenuous about viewing at least the House's version of this debate through the lens of health care. It's a tax policy bill, that, and the health care has to move around that. Some Republican senators seem to have suggested that they actually want to make a stab at, like, rejiggering health care in America in, in some way that they like better. But I think that they themselves are going to find that, like, they're having the wrong conversation and that they need to either, you know, convince their colleagues to take a radically different approach or else they're going to end up, you know, bending, right? If you agree that all these tax cuts need to be in there, then you just can't cover people. Yeah, I think a good way to think about the House health care bill is it is a $600 billion tax cut with a not that well-designed health care pay for, right? <laughs> that's that's fundamentally what we keep thinking about it as a health care policy. But this is not how you would make a healthcare policy. It's not how you would fund healthcare policy. It's not what you would do with them. I mean, a, a lot is wrong there. But if you instead think about them as wanting to give a six hundred billion dollar tax cut to, to wealthy people, and they needed to get their their pay force out of roughly Obamacare and some Medicaid uh, reconstruction, you know, this is one way you could do it if you don't care about the consequences of any of that. And, and as Matt says, I mean, I think a real big question is: Does the Senate? stick to this. I mean, I do think the practical effect of the CBO score, which was already true, but it just lets the Senate abandon this bill completely, right? Nobody wants to pass a bill that scores like this. Nobody wants to defend a bill that scores like this. The Senate is already doing its own thing in a working group. Um, you know, these 13, 13 men are rewriting health care for the country, 13 white men are rewriting health care for the country, which I know people don't always like that kind of just raw demographics, but it, it does matter. Like you, 13 rich white men rewriting healthcare for the country, there are just certain biases that gives you. I have biases like that, and it, it's bad. Um, you, you should try to have a little bit more of a diverse crowd on something this important. As they do it, I think that they face uh, one other issue, which, which I do think is, is interesting. The technical quality of the bill the House wrote, the way it was written, the secrecy in which it was written, the staff that appears to have not been able to look at it, the number of people who seem to have been involved in its fundamental drafting was really basically Ryan. It was technically a very sloppy document. And I think that the absolute winning argument for it, the thing that above all got it over the finish line, was we got to get something to the Senate so they can do a better job. I think it was Yuval Levin who wrote something like, the House writes chapter headings and the Senate writes chapters when they're doing legislation. They're like, it's a very dismissive point about, about the House's role here, but I, I think there's something to it. The Senate working group, um, these senators, they just have a lot more policy resources. It includes 13 of them, not just Paul Ryan. They're coming from different wings of the party in a more real way. They, I think, are taking the responsibility here a little bit more seriously. And one thing that happens when you do all that 
is that it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to write a bill like this. The trade-offs are really difficult. Mitch McConnell, who's part of the working group, said the other day that he thinks a path to 51 on this is very, very difficult. He's not sure he sees it. Um, ben Sass, the Nebraska Republican, who is not part of the working group, I don't believe, but he said on, on Charlie Rose last night that he doesn't think there will be a health care bill this cycle, that he does not think the Congress will pass health care reform. This is very hard. Um, one thing that House Republicans did was basically uh, give away responsibility for it to the Senate. And so they contented themselves with passing something they knew would be a disaster by saying, well, the Senate will fix it. This is not the end of the process. This is a vote to keep the process going. Many moderates in the House voted, you know, quote unquote moderates voted on on that argument. Uh, nothing that they passed was actually going to become law yet. The Senate doesn't really get that. I mean, they could possibly say to themselves, well, it'll change in conference committee with the House, but everybody kind of knows that's bullshit. Uh, you know, at, at this point, if the Senate passes something, it will need to be, you know, they'll need to go back to the House, but you're starting to get to where it might actually become law. And that's just a very different incentive set. Now, what they want to do, uh, sort of nobody knows, different people in that group have very different objectives in healthcare, but they do not, I think, want to put their names on something this disastrous. Now, the, the one dynamic here that does worry me is that House Republicans have set such an incredibly low bar. They have created such a piece of garbage that you could imagine a CBO score that is, you know, only 10 million people lose coverage and, you know, has other knock-on bad effects. And it is a, a real, a, a really worse world than the one we're in and certainly than the one we could be in if Republicans actually decided what they wanted to do was stabilize the health insurance system, make sure people had good coverage and save money. You could do a much better job. Cassidy and others are, are at least thinking along those lines. But I do worry about the soft bigotry of low expectations after the House, that a CBO score that in a normal context would have been quite bad, all of a sudden it's like, well, that that's an improvement. I mean, I do remember USA Today headlined their piece <laughs> on the CBO bill, on the revised CBO score, which went from 24 million people losing, not having coverage who would have had it to 23 million. Their headline was, CBO, one million more people have health insurance <laughs> right. under new uh, GOP bill, which I'm not trying to malign the good work of USA Today, but that struck me as a real epic piece of point missing. I mean, there's a you know a few dynamics here that I do think you know should should worry you know the American people. Um, one is that I don't think people fully understand this, but if you're a Democrat in Congress and your district is kind of reddish, so you find yourself facing an electoral incentive to break with party leadership on certain things. What tends to happen if you do that is you start getting actually showered with campaign contributions from a set of donors who are very into moderate Democrats, right? There are certain business groups out there that are very loyal financial supporters of moderate Democrats. And so then when you're in your vulnerable district, your vulnerable races, you have a kind of flywheel incentive to demonstrate substantive moderation, both to appeal to voters and to appeal to your moderate Democrat donor base so that you can put ads up about how you're an independent thinker and, and blah, 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 bringing people together, working for solutions. Um, moderate Republicans are not like that. It's the far-right Freedom Caucus guys have a grassroots fundraising base, and the kind of mainstream leadership-oriented Republicans have a kind of establishment financial base. But there is no money in being a Republican who is less aggressive about cutting taxes than Paul Ryan or less aggressive about paring back the welfare state than Paul Ryan. So you actually have to be very careful as a frontline member, right? You want to make some gestures of moderation because you need to win your tough races, but it's really hard to buck the GOP donor class on their core issues, which is overwhelmingly cutting taxes, cutting taxes, cutting taxes, because you need financial support when you go run for re-election. It's telling, I, I was talking to someone from, uh, who has a background in, in sort of Miami area politics. And if you look at the two Miami area House Republicans, uh, both in districts that Hillary Clinton won very, very heavily, both huge target districts for Democrats in 2018, uh, the one who ultimately voted no on the bill, uh, Ileana Ross-Lenton, is the one who's retiring. 
Carlos Corbello, who actually has to run again in 2018, he voted yes, right? And there's something a little counterintuitive about that. And if it was Democrats, you would say, no, that's totally backwards, right? It's the retiring member can finally just, like, vote their progressive soul, fuck the politics, blah, blah, blah. But the one who has to stay for re-election needs to be cautious. For these sort of South Florida, Cuban-American, moderate Republicans, it's exactly the opposite. Russ Lentinen, who is stepping down, can say, you know what? Like, I've been a Republican for anti-communism reasons, you know, general sort of business-friendly reasons, but like, I have never been here to gut the welfare state. We promise to protect people with pre-existing conditions. This bill doesn't do it. You know, fuck you, leadership. Uh, Corbello, you know, he's he's walking the plank on this one because he is going to be counting on you know, super PACs to pour huge amounts of money into his race so that he doesn't know what opponent he's going to face, but that person is going to have some vulnerabilities. He's going to want to hit those vulnerabilities hard. The way to hit those vulnerabilities hard is to be a loyal member of the the tax cut army. And that same dynamic is going to hit in the Senate at some point, you know, that if you are Dean Heller, you know, Yes, you don't want to vote for a very unpopular bill and then run for re-election in Nevada, but you also don't want to, you know, alienate the people who you're counting on to back your campaign. Um, Low-income Nevadans are not going to, like, chip in small donor contributions to help Dean Heller out. He needs to be, like, on the good side of the sort of the big money players there. And that's going to be a very powerful force pushing, you know, to, again, to not be the person who killed this. And I think there are some other, just to like pile onto that, some other factors that are going to make senators a little more comfortable supporting a bill that might not be popular. One is that um, you're seeing, you know, an interesting dynamic shape up where there's way more pro um, aha or whatever we're calling it at this time. There's way more pro Republican bill advertising at this point than there ever was for the Affordable Care Act. There was a really interesting um, article on the Cook Political Report that showed, um, you know, in 2010. 89% of the ads on healthcare were anti-Obamacare, 11% were pro. Um, At this point in 2017, you know, you're seeing 57% are anti, 43% are pro-Republican bills. So there's still more anti-Republican bill advertising than than pro, but at least like there's a, there's a footprint, right? There's like people out there putting already like doing ads to like say like, this is a good bill. Probably it's going to lower premiums. They'll probably talk about the CBO report and some of the numbers there. So you've already seen like a mobilization in terms of advertising in support of this Republican bill. One other thing Republicans are doing during this, um, they're about to go on recess next week, the houses. And one thing they're doing smartly is they're just not holding town halls anymore. Um, I was talking to some of the folks at the town hall project who track this sort of thing. And um, they've identified three Republicans who voted for the bill who will hold town halls next week, three out of 217. And I think, you know, they'll probably get a bit of blowback, like, why aren't you doing this? But I think it is good for senators right now to see as few angry town halls as possible if they want to, like, kind of, like, say, like, yes, this is a thing we're going to do. It could possibly scare them off, you know, seeing their colleagues in the House getting shouted down um, in really raucous town halls. So, you know, the smart strategy on the part of the House seems to be just, like, not to have those moments, like not to create the place where those could happen. So, you know, I see those factors coming together, like more um, pro-Republican plan advertising, less blowback at town halls. You know, if you're a senator kind of eyeing the situation, you might look at it and say, well, you know, they're they're getting through okay. Like they're they're not getting completely pummeled on this. Like maybe I could feel okay voting for something like this. Great businesses are powered by great people. You know that, and unfortunately, your competitors also know that. So you need to not just be great at finding great people, you need to be better than everyone else. That's really hard, but ZipRecruiter can be your solution. Uh, With ZipRecruiter, you post your job to 100 more job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anywhere else. Uh, That's why ZipRecruiter is different. It's not just a job posting site. It's a computer-driven recruiting service. They don't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. 
them. Over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. That is fast. Uh, there's no juggling emails or calls to the office. You can screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Uh, so you find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all size to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Uh, right now, our listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's a good price. Free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. One more time. Try it for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash weeds. Okay. Let's talk about Montana. Yeah. Because I do think Speaking of the, getting pummeled. Yeah. Because I... I, I, oh. I do, oh, that was ooh. good. That's I, I do think that that is a cautionary tale for Republicans in this. Um, Montana's special election last night, the Republican candidate won by six points. Uh, the race was upended in the final 24 hours by the news that the Republican candidate had grabbed Ben Jacobs from The Guardian by the neck, uh, thrown him to the floor, broken his glasses, uh, yelled at him. Um, and... You know, then he won anyway. So we connect like, these stories real quick. The offense Ben Jacobs committed <laughs> was to ask him about the CBO score. Yeah, the hot CBO score. Man. Anyway, uh, that's an interesting story, right? And so the the cycle of hot takes began to spin out about you know were Republicans you know taking responsibility for Jen Forte's misconduct? Is there an anti media climate? Apologies, you know, voters don't care. If, Whatever, Trump people hate the media anyway. All that kind of stuff spinning around and around and around. It's fascinating. It's interesting, blah, blah, blah. Um, But here's, I think, the basic bottom line that Republicans should think about is that this is a seat that Donald Trump won by 20 points uh, last fall. It's a seat uh, where Ryan Zinke, who had been the House member before he became Interior Secretary, he won it by 18 points uh, in his reelection. And Rob Quist got outspent very, very heavily. Uh, Rob Quist is not actually like he's like a good cultural fit for for Montana. He's like a longtime uh, local guy. He, he plays the banjo. He has a cowboy hat. Um, but he turned out to have some personal vulnerabilities. He ran a campaign whose message was all about this healthcare bill, healthcare bill, healthcare bill, healthcare bill. John Forte tried to dodge the issue. I mean, he was not an incumbent member, so he did not literally vote on this. He, in his public comments, was very ambiguous, kept saying, well, he would need to wait for the CBO score to come out before he could really judge. Uh, Then he got angry when he was asked about it. But he told donors in a sort of private call that, you know, he, he was with them on this. But that was the issue Rob Quist had going for him. It's like, this guy indicated in a call for donors that he was for this House Republican bill. Now, he lost. He, he lost by six points. Um, six points is a really close margin for a House race in Montana. There are 120 House districts that are less Republican-friendly than this one. Uh, most of the members representing those 120 districts cast actual votes for this bill, um, oftentimes uh, multiple times in committee. They may they will have to vote again when a Senate bill comes back. And the suggestion of the Montana bill is that, you know, Democrats, by making health care a dominant issue, gain a significant amount of ground relative to where they were in the past. Um, The whole topic may fade, but having this bill be in the news seems like it was very, very, very bad for a Republican candidate running in a very, very, very easy seat. Yeah. So one of the things that's like hard for me to understand how much to draw out from the Montana election, one of the things I think you said was important is about the idea the issue might fade because I think it's very easy to, you know, draw comparisons to 2010 and say, look, you know, the Democrats passed this bill in March. In November, a bunch of moderate Democrats lost their seat that generally this was like a election losing issue for them. Um, one thing I just find one is just how much is Montana kind of um, like how much can you extrapolate from Montana to the rest of the country? Perfectly. <laughs> Perfectly. It's just yeah. like that's how you do everything. You look at what happens in Montana and then you and say Singapore, too. It's right? exactly the same. You look at Singapore. Uh, you know, that's how Nate Silver's election model works. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, he just so, only looks at Montana polls. <laughs> well, that answers my question then. So there's that going on for me. The other thing, you know, I, I wonder about is the timing of all this. So. 
the House takes their vote for the American Healthcare Act in May. We don't have an election coming up till November of 2018. And how much this and this election happens right at a moment when um, just weeks after the House vote, like the day after the CBO score comes out, it, it happens at a moment when healthcare is like very much a leading topic in the news. So I'm, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious like how much Democrats draw from um, this one election. It seems like in the prime setting where like healthcare is like a leading news topic and, and like it's really in the forefront, you can make a deal of it. I don't know how much um, it resonates, you know, when we get to the midterm elections. I mean, part of this is colored by this trip I took back to Kentucky last week where I talked to a lot of people who really did not like the American Healthcare Act, who like, even before, you know, I started talking about some of the details, like, you know, they they understood it was like a bill that would like hurt them. But at the same time, most of them like didn't see it changing their voting behavior. They felt like, you know, well, our representative been in office for, you know, 30-some years now. He's a good guy. He's good for this area. I don't like this vote, but I'm willing to overlook it. Um, You know, I read his emails he sends out, and he says, like, here's all the reasons I had to vote for it, and I kind of get it. Um, So I I don't know. I'm curious how much this one issue will be able to resonate in in the larger scheme outside of Montana. I have a couple thoughts here. Um, The first is that I think it's important what we think about this voting behavior, and we talked a bit about this uh, on the earlier weeds this week, weeds won. (laughs) But first, you know, everybody is to a first approximation going to vote the same way they always vote. Certainly the same way they voted before. The questions are just like if they come out and then like, is there a swing of not 50 people out of 100, but seven? If seven out of 100 people change who they vote for or even like don't come out to vote and it all goes one way, then you have a massive wave election. And so I, just, I think that one thing that, that I want to be a little careful in is that American politics is both incredibly stable and because it's quite closely divided, incredibly volatile. For the most part, nobody changes their votes ever. But because – what is the Senate breakdown right now? 52-48. Yeah. 52-48. Um, and in the House, I'm not going to do that from memory. It's a, a more lopsided Republican victory, but it's not like a 65-35 difference. You don't need a big swing to change the balance of power in American politics. And so I just – I think it's very hard for reporters out there, for us, you know, projecting to just say like you could have that swing through a mixture of, you know, a couple people out of 100 flipping over the Democrats and then a couple people just being like, oh, like, I don't know, this whole, this whole thing has bummed me out. I'm going to do something else on this Tuesday rather than vote for these people who I don't care about. I mean, it is telling, right? I mean, you went to a very conservative part mm-hmm. of Kentucky. And what people were not saying was this signature legislative initiative of the new conservative governing majority is something that I, as a conservative person in a conservative area of America, am really excited about. Oh, yeah. 100%. I mean, it was very notable that no one was like, I think this bill is working in my best interest. It was like, I think my premiums will go up or I will lose health insurance. And that is telling you something, right? I mean, Affordable Care Act obviously did not, like, work out as a stunning political success for Democrats at the time. But there were people who liked it. It it wasn't most people, but it was, like, some people. The national climate does matter. I mean, I do think that you know, one big difference is that the overall economic situation was quite bad when the 2010 midterms were held. So it was relatively easy for Republicans to be like, see, they're passing this stupid, bad health care bill instead of getting new jobs. So far, the economic conditions are fairly benign in America. If that holds up, it is going to be just always a challenge for challengers to, like, get people focused on some abstract issue, particularly if the vote happened months ago. But it is strange for a newly empowered majority to be spending its time pushing a bill that is like so bad that there is no place you can go. Right. If you if you were asking, it's like, where where should we travel to that? The local people are so right wing that if we ask them, like, what do you think about this bill? (laughs) They're going to be like, it's great. This is just what we wanted. And like, you can't find them. And you could on some of this stuff, right? I mean, if you wanted to go find people who are glad that Donald Trump is rolling back environmental regulations, like they are out there. You know, my, my father-in-law knows them. Uh, they're they're all around fossil fuel extraction areas of the country. There's no place where people like want this kind of legislation except like Republican Party donut retreats. 
There's a few. I mean, like, if you look at, like, at this, if we go back to the CBO report, the real winners are 21-year-olds who make over $75,000 a year. So somewhere in, like, I don't know, like, maybe Silicon Valley, but I don't even think they're jazzed about it. Well, because that's what I'm saying, right? right? Like, I mean, you, it's just like... There's some theoretical, right. like highly educated young person living in a big city who benefits from this bill. I mean, I'm sure I could walk around Washington, D.C. and like find people who demographically fit in the winner category, but they're like not Republicans. They don't think this is a good idea either. And that's, you know, it's telling yeah. you something about this whole strategy. Right. To the broader question of 2018, I just don't think we know, right? I, I think this is a place where we'll just have to see one of the fascinating dynamics we're going we're gonna to have to watch for has to do with just disillusionment. So in 2010, you had a lot of Democrats who just like bummed out. They voted for Obama. They'd been super excited, but the economy was still shit and the healthcare bill didn't have a public option and they hadn't got an immigration reform. And it's just like, it was like a big letdown. Trump, um, I think interestingly, he thrives more on conflict than on hope. It's more like marshalling his forces against the other side. And so he's very good at getting attention. He's very good at upping the stakes of things. Obama, who kind of has a chill, low-energy personality a lot of the time, I think had trouble as his presidency went on, pretty when he was not himself on the ballot. He does not want to escalate the stakes of American politics and, and does not want to, like, turn people out through fury and outrage for the most part. And so, you know, he, I think, let uh, – I don't want to say let. It wasn't fully in his control. But he was part of what led to Democrats' de- depressed turnout. Uh, Trump, I, I think the very interesting dynamic of them going into the midterms is that the one thing he is genuinely amazing at is getting attention, getting people upset, getting people angry. Like, who will he pick a fight with three weeks before the election? What kind of war is he in – are he – I don't mean literal war necessarily. Like, I mean, political war, will he and Steve Bannon launch? I don't know the answer to that. But on some level, the Demo- the friend of the Democrats, given your reporting in Kentucky, is just a, a sense of disillusionment and depression among Republicans, even if they've not changed who they want to vote for. The question is, how excited are they to go out to vote? Mm-hmm. And one, I think the really interesting question that we're going to have to see is, is Trump, uh, as time goes on, able to use sort of culture war and conflict to make people excited even when they are not hopeful or thrilled about how his administration is going, right? Our, and you saw this a little bit with the the post-body slam commentary I don't really buy some of these anecdotes, to be honest. I don't think the anecdotes were made up. I just don't buy them as, as all that representative. But, you know, you had Republican voters who were quoted saying, oh, yeah, those those reporters deserved it. Can Trump create a kind of, you're not voting for me because things are going well. You're voting for me to, like, fuck these people over. Like, you're voting for me so, like, the media and the elites and the cosmopolitans don't win. And that'll be important. But we're so far from there. And the political situation is changing so much every two weeks right now that I think it's just completely impossible to say. All right. We're almost out of time. Uh, we, should, we, should, we should wrap this up. Uh, thanks, uh, Sarah and Ezra, for coming by for a second time this week. Um, thanks to our producer, Peter Leonard. Thanks to all of you for listening. And Miles Ewell in New York. Yes. And stay tuned. On Monday, we have another episode of Weeds in the Wild launching. If you are traveling on Memorial Day and want to get your policy fix, uh, we've got you covered. So stay tuned. They'll be coming onto the feed Monday morning. And uh, hop in the Facebook group and, and say hi. What's it about, sir? It's about what it looks like if Obamacare explodes. Cool. It's about explosions. <laughs> it's about the worst case scenario, which we like to look, get dramatic about here. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. 